So today, as part of our Upside podcast series, which is powered by Sports Tech Advisors, we have the honor to interview Vasu Kukrani, a partner at Quartzas VC, a leading sports tech VC. So Vasu, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great. Uh, so Vasu, what I was hoping to talk to you about today was first, how you got into the VC world. And then also, I want to get your thoughts on uh, you know, what you're looking for when considering investing into a startup and what you also believe are the major trends uh, in sports tech. But also, I wanted to get your thoughts on the types of advice uh, you would give to any CEOs in sports tech looking to raise money. And then lastly, you know, given the, uh, the circumstances, I'd love to get your thoughts on the coronavirus and how you think it would impact sports. So how does it sound? Whew, that's that, that, that's a lot there, but uh, well, we'll, we'll try to lot. get on all of yeah. that. Okay, um, great. So, uh, Vasu, first of all, um, for those who are listening, so how did you get into the VC world, so people understand? Well, I was uh, I was an entrepreneur um, for about eight years. Started a company out of my dorm room called Crossover. It was a sports analytics SaaS company. Moved to New York after college, um, set it up, and basically had up to, I think at our peak, we were close to 100 employees here. We had about 10,000 customers, and you know, basically, I just started by bootstrapping that company, then raised some angel money, and then some more angel money, and then went out to raise venture money and couldn't raise any and granted, you know, this was a very different time. This was, I came out of college in 2008. So it was right in the midst of the last financial crisis. And that's right. You know, yeah. Raising, you know, raising money at that time was not easy. Raising money for uh, a sports analytics company, which no one ever heard of, was even more difficult. And then on top of that, you know, sports just wasn't a, a vertical that the traditional VCs really looked at. And so, I struggled mightily to raise capital for that business, ended up having to raise all of my money from angels and super angels and sort of high net worth, uh, super high net worth guys like owners of NBA and NFL teams. And so, you know, in, in the end, I ended up raising a decent amount of money, but it was all raised through non-institutional means. And when, when we finally ended up exiting that company in 2017, um, you know, one of the things that I had always thought about was how difficult it had been for me to raise capital, even though I had an idea that probably should have been something that, uh, that, that VCs would have invested in over time, perhaps not at the seed stage, but once we got to two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight million dollars in recurring revenue, you would think that it, that it, that a VC would, would pull the, the trigger and invest in something like that. And yet, we were unable to raise any any institutional VC money. And so that was sort of the wow. genesis for getting into venture after I exited was, hey, there's clearly a need in the market for people to back sports-related companies. Traditional venture capital firms are ignoring this space for a variety of reasons, but it just isn't a focus for them. There's much larger opportunities for them to go after, and yet – it's clear that there's a ton of innovation taking place in sports and somebody needs to, to kind of solve this problem for the entrepreneurs. And that was the genesis of Courtside Ventures starting. I, I went back to uh, my, my lead investor in my company, who was Dan Gilbert, the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers. He ended up becoming the first investor in Courtside. 
Um, the only other investor actually ended up being WPP, the world's largest advertising firm. And so we set up a $35 million fund in 2016 to invest in sports and gaming and to prove that sports was actually a place that you could generate venture returns because no one had ever done it before. Um, that There had been no other early stage funds that were focused on this space. And so that was our, our goal. And I think you know, it's, been, it's been four years since we we launched that fund and we are pleasantly surprised by how much deal flow we have seen, how much really interesting stuff is going on in this space. Um, you know, I, I will say the, the word sports tech is a little bit of a misnomer, right? So I think the way most people think of the word sports tech is a product or a service that is being sold to a sports team is the way they think about it. And Look, the, right. the, the bulk of companies in that space will not likely be venture returnable businesses. There, there might be some, um, but, but most of the businesses in that space are struggle to get to a large scale to the point where you can return the types of uh, uh, the type of money that you need to if if you're going to take on venture capital. Um, so, so when I think about sports tech, I say, look, if you're building a business in that space raise some angel money and try to get the profitability as quickly as you can. And you will hopefully end up selling that business for 10, 20, $30 million. And if you're the founder and you only took on two to $5 million in, in capital, you can come out of it uh, pr pretty, pretty sitting quite pretty at the end of it. Um, but if you are going out there trying to build a large company that's going to be venture backed and hundreds of employees and you're trying to trying to swing for the fences then you know most companies that are selling a product or a service to sports teams will struggle to build that kind of scale and so when we think about the places that we're willing to invest money and we think you can generate those types of returns they really fall under under four buckets for us one is sports media and content. Um, the second bucket is fitness and wellness. Third bucket is is esports and gaming. And the fourth bucket yep. now, um, given the changes in legislation in the U.S., will be sports betting and everything related to that industry. So those are the places where that that we think of when we talk about sports technology. Uh, but I, I don't think that they're the, 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 the traditional ways that venture capitalists think about sports tech. And it's one of the reasons why I think there's been such a lack of investment in this space up until the last couple of years. I think you're right. And I think I'd like to go back to your comments about some sports, well, maybe I shouldn't say sports tech startups that are having maybe some trouble to scale their business over time. Uh, what I've seen is many startups, especially in the wearable space, right? We're building biosensors and things like that. They would start in sports and then at some point the investors would say, well, if you really want to scale the business, you should look into verticals like healthcare, industrial, the military, right? Because then you can get into much bigger deals, right? So if you offer your solution to, let's say, uh, an oil and gas construction company when they have thousands of workers, right? From an investor perspective, that's much more attractive, right? However, there's regulation, it's a longer sales cycle and all of that, right? But uh, I guess what I'm saying is there's a trend that I'm seeing with a lot of sports tech companies migrating towards other verticals over time. Are you seeing the same thing? Or? 
Yeah, I, th- I think when you think about, again, the, the traditional definition of sports tech, I think what you're finding is many of those companies look at sports as their initial beachhead market for a, a number of reasons. One, it might be a quicker sales cycle. They may have some in some ins with some teams or some players. Um, it's a sexier industry to get into. And as a result, you can get uh, some good PR out of it, some good marketing uh, so, you know, if you, if you have a product that's being used by the, the Los Angeles Lakers and LeBron James is using it, that's yep. a much more interesting story for the news to write about than you know, some some oil and gas industry using the same product right? Or, that's or, right. or somewhere in healthcare. Yep. And so I, I think you start in sports many times um, to get that initial uh, market traction and market validation, but then you very quickly have to have other verticals that you can go after. Otherwise, you can't build a big enough business. And I think you know, some some companies, there's a very clear path to go from sports to another vertical. And others, they try to force it because they don't realize that, hey, you know what? The thing you're building, it actually is only relevant to sports. But now some investor that you took money from is telling you that you need to expand because he now doesn't believe in the size of the market that you were initially going after. And now you start to try to force to this product to find product market fit inside of a market where there actually is no fit for it. And so, you know, it's something we've seen over and over again. Everyone tries to say they're going to start in sports and expand. I'd say very few times have I actually seen companies that have successfully been able to actually go from sports to another vertical that's much larger and, and build a large business, most of them end up sort of floundering. And then they just end up building a small profitable business within sports, which again, there's nothing wrong with building a profitable business as long as you hadn't taken the type of venture capital that you uh, that, that you didn't need early on if you were just going to do that to begin with. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, so from an investment perspective and as an investor, right? So what are you personally looking for when doing some due diligence on, on startups? What are the things that you're looking for? Well, we, you know, we have a pretty data-driven approach. We, uh, we have about 20 different um, things that we look at when we are evaluating a deal. Every partner grades every deal that we bring in uh, on these 20 criteria. We then sort of take a, a, an average across the, fa- the, the three partners to figure out what our score is on this deal. And you know, based on that score, we pretty much know after the, you know, the, we, we've looked at several thousand deals over the last four years, we've done 40, 46 or 48 deals as of now. Um, so, so we have a pretty good sense when we look at that score at the end of our grading process if it falls within the threshold at which uh, we will do a deal or, or absolutely will not do a deal. Um, and for us, though, I'd say just sort of speaking from a high level, I believe that there's two things that you look for in every deal that you do if you're an institutional venture fund. The first one is just the overall size of the market opportunity. It, it doesn't matter how good everything else is that it might be the greatest product on earth. They might be the best founders in the world. If at the end of the day, uh, the the problem that they're trying to solve simply is not big enough, then it, it just doesn't make sense for a venture fund to put money in. This is, you know, it goes back to our 
uh, the first point we spoke about, just raise an angel round, build a nice profitable business, and you'll make some money as a founder, but don't go raise venture. And then, you know, the right. second thing, a very close, uh, a very close second place to market size for me is, is the actual founders and whether uh, they are, uh, ha- have some sort of domain expertise, some sort of an unfair advantage. You know, why are they doing this? What is the mission that drives them to build this company, whether that be a problem that they saw in their own lives or, or in the lives of a loved one, um, whether yeah. it is um, you know, some, something, ha- there's got to be a story there that makes us feel like this is the right team that has the right motivation to solve this problem. Um, because invariably what we have found when, when we're so vertically focused is that for just about every company that we've seen, there's at least three to five, if not 10 other people working on the exact same problem at the exact same time. Um, and, and so it, the, the good news for us is when you're as vertically focused as we are, we tend to see absolutely every deal in our space because unlike a generalist, that's kind of looking at everything. And so, you know, with a, with a small team, there's only so many deals that you can look at. Within the world of sports and gaming, we pretty much get to see every single early stage deal that exists. And frankly, we, we tell ourselves if, if a deal gets done in this space and we didn't see it, we failed at our jobs. Um, it, it's one thing yeah. if we passed and it turns out to be a success later. We can, we can live with that. That's not a problem. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that I think we learned uh, over the course of the last four years that in venture, you can't do every great deal, but every deal you do has to be great. Right. And and I think you have to keep that in mind with venture because there's so many deals that you can you get FOMO so often. You're like, oh, my God, I can't believe we we're not going to do this deal. Look who else is co-investing in this deal. It's it's all the blue chip guys. We have to do it. But here's the thing. There's always going to be great deals and you just can't do every one of them because you you just don't have enough capital to do every deal. And so you have to be willing to let certain deals go. And so for us, it's market size is number one, but very close behind is is the founders. And if there's something off about the founders or a reason for us to not believe that they're the right team, then then we will end up passing. And, And I think everything else you can kind of make your your peace with it. Ah, tech's not great today. Okay, how can we help them build better tech? Can we find them a CTO? Ah, product design isn't fantastic. Okay, no problem. Can we find a designer that we can bring in and we can polish up the product? You can solve all these other problems. The two things that you cannot solve, you cannot solve for poor founders or founders that are lacking the things that you need uh, to get the job done, and you cannot solve for a market size that simply isn't big enough because it's highly unlikely that you're going to go and expand the size of the market yourself. It, it does happen once in a while, but you know, I would, I would bet against uh, a company showing up and actually creating a brand new market or expanding the size of a market. You know, usually the market is the market and you, you either are, are going after a big enough problem or you're not. Yeah. I think you made some good points uh, about the, the size of the market and the funding team. So you talked earlier about the areas of investment that you guys are focusing on, one being or two being esports and I think betting, right? So uh, which goes back to my next question, right? So what do you think are the most uh, the major trends in the world of sports tech today uh, and why? 
Well, you know, if we, it's a it's a topical time where uh, we are right in the midst, perhaps, or right in the start of uh, the next financial crisis of the world. As uh, we're sitting here recording this in in mid March of, of 2020, when markets have crashed, uh, you know, 30 percent in the last two weeks, uh, the world is on fire. People are quarantined, and we are now. You know, it, it is it is not business as usual. It, people literally cannot go outside. Um, and, and so, you know, everything that we thought about the world until one week ago, I think we have to rethink those things now as to what is the new normal? How long is it going to take before we get back to the, to the old normal? And it's possible we may not get there for another year to two years, um, both economically and socially. Um, we, we just don't know. Um, I don't necessarily know that people are going to come out of this six months from now and feel like they are ready to go to a boutique fitness class and be in a small room with 30 other people doing yoga. I, I don't know. I'm just I'm spitballing. I think but you're right. If you ask yeah. me, right, if, if you ask me where the world was in the world of fitness two weeks ago. I would have told you boutique fitness is having a moment. You know, there's there's studios opening up everywhere. Uh, you know, there's so much. There's so many interesting things happening there. Now, if you ask me the same question, I say to you, man, I'm I'm worried for boutique fitness studio owners uh, coming out on the other side of this thing. Whether it takes three months, six months, or twelve months for us to get out of this situation, I still worry for them because I don't know how long it's going to take for people to get back to doing the things they used to do. And so all of a sudden, hey, if you are a personalized fitness app uh, that allows you to work out from the comfort of your home, uh, if you are a Peloton, if you are a Tonal, if you are a Freeletics, you know, there's all these different hardware, software solutions that allow you to work out without having to be around other people. Ah, that might be where there's some interesting opportunity for the next couple of years all of a sudden. Um, well, Peloton stock was so at 13%. I, I, I think you're right. I mean, yeah, there's I mean, a look, shift. It's, it's, it's Peloton and Zoom right now are the, are the only companies right. whose stock is surging. Uh, everyone else is, is down in the dumps. And so I, I think the new normal is going to be a very different view of the world than, than what we thought of it. Just a, a, a short week ago, I think gaming is going to be another place where we're going to see uh, a, a massive uptick in, uh, in valuations given, hey, if you're stuck at home and you don't want to and you still want to have some sort of social encounter with people, but you don't want to be in the same room as them. Well, there's there's really nothing else you can do other than play video games together. Uh, and, and so right. you know, we are. Very, very excited about the opportunity that, that this, situ this unfortunate situation has presented for the gaming world. You know, gaming was already blowing up. It's a $150 billion a year industry, and it dwarfs the global box office. All of those stats everyone has seen. But now you combine all of those stats with you literally cannot leave home, and you need to find a way to entertain yourself. Um, and, and I can't think of a a better way to do it than gaming. So, you know, I think there's all these little macro factors that are that will will start to 
uh, you know, sort of change the way you think about uh, certain investments in different areas where you're going to make and where we're going to make investments over the next six months. Not that we weren't going to focus on these spaces anyway, but you know, when you when, when everyone calls, you know, everyone's been texting me the last couple of days. Hey man, how's it going? What's going on with business? How are you guys doing? Is it going to be a, a, a mess? And I go, look, yeah, there, there are certainly going to be some of our companies who may struggle as a result of there being absolutely no sports on for the next three months and the fact that people cannot go outside at all. But it also presents a massive opportunity for a number of other companies that we've either already invested in or are talking to investing in uh, because of the situation that we find ourselves in. No, I think you're right. Um, and I was just reading yesterday a report saying that Tencent, right, the gaming company from China, uh, they're supposed to yep. report earnings tomorrow. And people are saying they expect to see one of their best earnings, best results ever because of it, which is kind of ironic, right? Yep. Um, so, yeah, that would um, not shock me. Right. Um, so uh, two last questions. One is, you know, what kind of advice would you give to CEOs of startups looking to raise money, especially in this challenging environment, right? Um, because there are people still looking to raise money. There's a lot of startups trying to raise money. So it might be even harder right now. Well, <laughs> it, it may be harder, but it may also be easier. Look, I, I think if you're a super early stage company looking for angel money, times might be tough. Uh, pe people have lost uh, 20, 30% of their, their, their liquid net worth in the markets in the past two weeks. Um, I think you know, most angel investors don't do angel investing as their primary business. Their, you know, their source of income is something else, and they do angel investing you know, generally for fun, for diversification, uh, for, for many reasons, but they generally don't do it because they're counting on angel investments uh, to, to be their retirement strategy uh, or their long-term source of money. And so when you lose a bunch of your liquid net worth in the markets um, and given the current volatility, you're probably going to pull back from making angel investments for a while because it's just not you know, they're just it's just not worth the risk right now. You may as well sit it out and just wait for the markets to stabilize. I, I don't think that it all has to come back. I think people will start making investments soon enough. But I think you have to give it another 30 to 60 days here to make sure that the markets actually settle down. Um, it, it, it's volatility that scares people. It's not the lack of growth, right? And so yeah. I think as long as markets settle down, people will get back to doing what they were they were used to doing. Um, so, you know, if you're early, super early stage looking for angel money, I'd say mm, maybe sit it out for a while. Maybe take a, take, a, take a month or two months to plan, to do some things, to bootstrap, to take, take some time off. Whatever it is, I think, I think the next 30 to 60 days are going to be tough for those super early stage angel deals. I think when it comes to venture, look, there's a record amount of LP dollars sitting with venture capitalists right now, uh, more, more than in, in the history of the world. So the, the money is there and VCs don't make money if they don't invest it. So they are going to invest this money. It just may not happen over the next 30 to 60 days again for a variety of reasons. The most important one being that VCs need to spend the next 30 to 60 days thinking about their existing portfolio companies 
not so much new ones. They, they, they need to talk to all their existing portfolio CEOs, figure out what's going on. I mean, I, my entire week this week is entirely scheduled with existing portfolio companies to figure out how the coronavirus is affecting them. Right. Uh, what are their cash needs going to be? Do we need to bridge them? Um, I, I have to understand all of that before I can even start to think about making new investments. And so that's what these next 30 days are going to be about. It's about figuring out how to, how to make sure that the current investments stay alive. Then in, in about 60 days, I think you're going to start to see things turn back towards doing new deals. The other issue is you can't meet anyone right now. So right. if you're going to do a brand new venture deal and you can't meet the founding team, that's a, that's a really tough spot to be in. So you're, you're probably going to say, listen, come back to me in 60 days. There's, there's no urgency uh, because we can't even meet with you anyway. And so uh, I, I think that this is, again, it, it, these are uncharted waters. We've never been in a situation, in, as far as I can remember, where you literally cannot meet someone. Um, and, and so it's just a very, very weird situation. But I don't think that the startup ecosystem is going to suffer that much 60 days from now. It's the, the issue is going to be the companies that between now and 60 days from now are not going to have cash uh, and are going to go under if they can't get cash and they don't currently have a large lead institutional investor that can bridge them. Those are the companies that are in some serious trouble right now. Um, and so, you know, my, my advice to people is I would I would be picking up the phone right now if you have an existing investor or a group of investors and I'd be keeping them up to date on what's going on, whether you're going to need cash and whether or not you can count on them to give you cash uh, within the next 60 days if you need it. And then if you are a brand new company that hasn't raised any capital, you, you, you might want to take a, a couple of weeks off, you know, use it, use it to take a vacation before you come back to market. I think that's a great advice. Um... So, I mean, you know, you already talk about in some ways the of the impact of coronavirus into the world of sports. And I actually read an article, I think it was a few days ago, from TechCrunch saying that some VC guys were saying that they were seeing less competition in the VC space. And some of them were saying they could even see better VC deals with better term sheets. And I just I was wondering, what, what is your take on that? Um, is that true or not? I think, I think it's a... I think it's a fine line between, you know, being an opportunist and being uh, sort of a shark in this environment, right? Obviously, there's going to be a number of companies that are going to be desperate to get cash. And, you know, as a VC, does that give you an opportunity to negotiate or renegotiate a term sheet? Yes, of course it does, because you're you're in a position of power, but I think you know these are also the times when venture funds get to make uh, a, a good name for themselves by not going back on a deal that they've already signed or have said something about verbally. It's a time to to be a good partner to uh, an entrepreneur and to not use this opportunity to uh, to to basically try to cram them down and. And and take uh, take onerous terms just because they're in a position where they absolutely need money. Uh, it, it it's an unfortunate time, uh, and there's always people who are going to try to take advantage of it. But you know, if you're a VC who verbally agreed to do something with a company that is 
not really being that affected by the coronavirus. Like, look, it's it's one thing if this is a brick and mortar company and the guy literally cannot be in business for the next six months. Okay, I understand. You had a verbal agreement. You things have changed entirely, and now you come to the table and you say, "Look, man, here's the situation. We still want to back you, but." There's just so much uncertainty for the next six to 12 months, given the, the, the business that you're in. Here's the only way we can do this deal. We're going to need to account for the risk in this deal by reducing the valuation by 30%. Okay, fine. I get that. But if you're just using this opportunity to go back and retrade an entrepreneur, uh, despite the fact that his or her business has, is not really affected that much by coronavirus, just the overall market is being affected. You know, then, then I say you're no different than the guy who went and hoarded 17,000 bottles of hand sanitizer to try to make a quick buck. Like, what's the difference between you and him in that situation? Your 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 word is everything. And so I think it, it's you know, it's a it, like I said, it's a, it's a fine line. Um, I, I do expect that valuations will just in general drop by a little bit um, because because they can and because there just aren't uh, that many options out there and or entrepreneurs may be starting to feel the pinch of, well, I better just take the deal that's on the table now because who knows what's going to happen six months from now. Uh, and, and so they may not want to go out and run a full process. If you gave them a term sheet, they may be very quick to accept the term sheet today uh, as opposed to what may have happened two weeks ago where they look at a term sheet and go, listen, uh, you know, let, me, let me go shop this around and see if I can get a better deal. I, I think those are the reasons why you're going to see uh, a, a potential drop in, in general valuations. But look, the best deals will always be the best deals and the best deals will always be hot. They will always be competitive to get in on those deals and the valuations will still rise. I, I think times like this basically just separate the best startups from the mediocre ones even more. Um, and, and, and so that's, that's all it's going to be, but I, I don't expect this to sort of be like 2001 where, you know, the, the, the basis of that entire crash amongst other things was the fact that there were all these companies that had been funded without any fundamentals, without any unit economics making sense. And all of a sudden they've all raised hundreds of millions of dollars and then they're going public for billions of dollars without anything to back up the value of those businesses. That's not where we're at today, right? This is a this is an actual global pandemic uh, caused by a virus that will go away, even if it takes 12 to 18 months to go away, and then things will return to somewhat the same level they were at. And so I, I, I think that it's a, it's a different situation, but it's still a tough situation. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think you made a lot of very good points. Um, we just, there's so many unknown right now, but, you know, it will get get better and things will get back to normal. We just don't know how long it will take. So, um, look, I, I'd like to thank you for your time. Uh, it was very, very insightful. Uh, so thank you. And then um, I'll make sure to uh, monitor the market and, and, and be in touch. But thank you. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And, and, and be in touch. But thank you.